You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. What Paul is saying throughout this and what he's pointing to this Colossian church is that to practice the way of Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus, to embody these truths, you can't do it absent of community. You have to have people around you. You need the body. And so often we want to be individual contributors that just kind of jump in and out when we can because it's way more convenient and it's way less messy, but we are missing out on a fundamental element of following in the way of Jesus, that we are made to be in community. We are continuing this morning in our study of Colossians, and uh, if you want to stand with me, we're going to be reading from Colossians 3.12. I'm going to invite uh, Christina to come on up and read. Good morning. Okay, really, we are reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 in the English Standard Version. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. And I, I want to read a, a, a quote from G.K. Chesterton. It says this, the, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. He has a way with words, but this one's always stuck with me because there's a truth to it that there's times we're following the way of Jesus, we're practicing the way of Jesus, feels like this incredibly daunting task that's in front of us. And there's certain passages that we begin to talk through where we're to put things off, we're to put things on, where we can start to feel like it's just simply this to-do list and then it's up to us to change ourselves. Because what we know is that any new habit or any change in our life, it involves practice. It involves a discipline. And what we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form is that to change is, is something hard. It doesn't just always naturally happen. And what Paul is doing in this section we find ourselves in, he's pointing this church in Colossae to put on a new way of life, to put to death the old way, but to put on the mind of Christ to walk forward in his ways, practicing this. In the same way that the Colossians are invited to follow in the way of Jesus, so we too are invited to follow and put on these virtues, these characteristics, but not just as clothing that we wear, but something that we are to live and practice and to embody. 
But what I found is that many of us pause in our practice of pursuing Jesus and following in his ways because we can't get it perfect. We wonder if we're getting it right or if this is the, the best next thing. But, but practice and following Jesus, practice doesn't mean perfection. It means progress. Often the, the path of following Jesus is failing forward, keeping our eyes fixed on him, recognizing that he is over all things. Growing up, uh, my brothers and I uh, always enjoyed watching uh, the Karate Kid. Uh, how many have seen the original Karate Kid? So I always enjoyed watching that movie, and it tells the tale of the bullied kid who it gets paired up with the enigmatic Mr. Miyagi who takes him under his wing and he turns him into a karate master. And, and my, my life was to be patterned after him. I had the bandana that I would tie tight on my head. I would practice my crane kick with my brothers, which was always to my detriment because they were older than me. Uh, but I, I thought I could, I could embody this way. But there's a scene in this movie that has lived on for me far beyond just the quest of being a karate master. And it's the way in which Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel. See, when they first meet, he's told he's going to train him. But the first thing he has Daniel do is a bunch of chores. He has him paint the fence. He has him painted up and down. He has him painted side to side. He has him wax the floor. It wax on and wax off. He has him sand the floor, sand the floor. He's doing, going through all these things, and, and eventually Daniel's like, this is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up to be your slave. I signed up to learn how to fight. And in this key moment, Mr. Miyagi says, okay, after four days of doing this, show me how you paint the fence. And so Daniel's like painting the fence, and he's like getting his wrist like this. And then, and then Mr. Miyagi says, now I want you to show me how you wax on and wax off. And Daniel's like this. Like this. And then Mr. Miyagi attacks him and he says, Wax on. And Daniel blocks him, right? With the wax on, wax off. And then he says, Sand the floor. And Mr. Miyagi goes to kick him and he sands the floor and he blocks him away. And I'm like, That's what I'm talking about. Because Mr. Miyagi was training him without Daniel even knowing it. He was having him do everyday mundane actions that turn from actions into practices and habits that turned into a way of life. So he had that. Mr. Miyagi knew what he was doing. And so as we look at this passage, Paul is telling us, here are the actions. Here's the way in which you need to paint the fence. Here's the way in which you need to wax on, wax off. This is the way in which to follow Jesus and to practice this and to embody this truth with your life. Now, last week, if you weren't with us last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to, to Pastor Dane's message where Dane took us and walked us through this idea of the things that we are to put to death it was a great message, and, and I got to listen to it twice, and there was things in there each time that, that got a hold of me. And he reminded us that like weeds, sin must be ruthlessly removed from our life. It, as he was speaking, it reminded me of the 16th century pastor John Owen who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Paul is saying, put this to death. Put this old way of life to death. But when we put that old way of life to death, that, that old garment, as Dane so elegantly put, that it was this old garment of vomit and sweat and snot and sewage encrusted over us that we want to go back to. No, no, no. We put that to death and we're to pick up our new suit 
We're to pick up our new dress that Christ has clothed us in. Now, I have to tell you, sitting through both services, it was a joy for me to watch every time he described that encrusted garment, the ways in which people would twitch and move. But I just want to tell you that it wasn't until he said snot that I saw everyone kind of like, okay, that's too much. Like that was the breaking point. But that image of that, that gross way of being that we so go back to and try and put on over the newness of what Christ has done in us. See, we're a new creation in Christ. And we are to be made more and more in the image of Christ. And again, Dane reminded us that we live in this tension of we have victory in Christ, but, but as we pattern ourselves after him, we won't fully experience a wholeness in, ten, in him until he returns. And so we live in this tension of the now and the not yet. And this passage picks up with where we've put things to death. Now what are the things that we're to put on? What's the clothing that we are to wear? What are the characteristics? What are the virtues that we are supposed to live in? And so in, Galatia, or in Colossians verse 3, or verse 12 of chapter 3, it says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now he's going to go on to list five virtues, but I want us to stop here at this very moment. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are to put on something like a garment. We are to put on the things of Christ to wear the way of Jesus. But here he's making an important clarification at the onset. He's reminding us of who we are before we ever try to strive for anything. And he's using language of chosen, holy, and beloved. This language of chosen, holy, beloved, this was language that was used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to describe the Israelite people, the nation chosen by God to be his representatives here on earth. And now what Paul is saying is that in Christ, through Christ, you are the chosen, holy, beloved people. Paul is pushing back on this idea and reminding us again and again that this good news of Jesus is good news for everyone. And so as God's chosen, holy, and beloved, this is the place where we begin to put on these garments, that idea of the chosen ones. It's language here speaking to God seeking and choosing us. It's his grace overcoming us and overwhelming us. If you are in Christ, if you have bowed your knee to him, if you are living in obedience to him and you are saying he is my savior, you are chosen by God. What that means is you don't have to worry about being the last person picked in the cosmic game of dodgeball. He's chosen you. You're his. Holy. Holy to be set apart. That you are to look different. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Your values are the kingdom values that are given to you by your king, Jesus. And we pattern ourselves after him. Not according to the way of the world, but according to his way. And so we know that we are chosen, we're holy, and finally we're beloved. We're beloved. This designation of beloved 
It's the very words that when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism that God spoke over his son and said, this is my son in whom I will please. This is my beloved son. The same way that God speaks of Jesus, he now speaks of us as beloved because when he sees us, those who follow in the way of Jesus, he sees not our righteousness or our striving, he sees the righteousness of Christ and we are beloved by him. So you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved. The Apostle Peter, he would speak a very similar theme in, in 1 Peter 2.9. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Paul here is making sure that we know as we try to put these things on, we're doing so out of the identity of chosen, holy, and beloved because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. You're chosen. You're no accident. You are holy. You should look different in how you live. And you are beloved, not for what you've done, but for what he has done for you. And now knowing this, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a com compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So there's a lot to unpack here. So let's just start with these five virtues, these five characteristics that we are to, to put on. Where do we see this? Where do we see this lived out? Because again, when we start to make lists, it can start to feel overwhelming. We can feel pretty inadequate really fast. Like I can't do this. I can't do all five of these. I can't even do one of these. Right? But where do we see this lived out? Where do we see this modeled for us? We see it in the life of Jesus. We see the compassion of Jesus in the way he interacts with those around him. We see his, his kindness. We see his humility in serving others, not looking to be served. We see his meekness, this sense of strength that he has, that he uses in a way that's not overwhelming or overpowering. And we see his patience over and over again with his disciples. So let's just look at this list quickly and get an idea of what, what these contain. That first one, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. The words here literally mean the bowels of compassion. The bowels of compassion. That, that word for heart, it, it, the Hebrew concept of the heart was actually your, your innards. The Greeks had this, this thinking too that your emotions, your reasoning were seated on your insides. And so here he's saying, have bowels of compassion. I had a friend once who was teaching at a youth camp, and he was speaking on this idea of what does it mean to have compassionate hearts, and that the word for this is as spalachna, which just already sounds amazing. And so to show them what it means to have, you know, compassionate bowels that just are overflowing, his brilliant idea was that as he taught along the way, he was just going to continue downing milk, right? Now, there's a certain point that your body will no longer take any more milk. 
And at that point, it wants to get out of you as fast as you can. And his whole point was as he was exploding everywhere, that this should be the compassion that's coming out of us. Now, I share that with you because that image has always stuck with me. And I had this realization in first service. I don't think we've ever talked more about vomit than we have in the last two weeks. And so I apologize for that. I think it's just like the junior high boy in me that can't ever grow up. But we're to have a compassion that spills over. A compassion that can't be contained. And a kindness. Kindness, one of the nine virtues that's mentioned in Galatians is is the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, a, a trait that seems so lacking in our world today. But do you remember what Paul says about the Lord's kindness and and its intention, what it leads to? In Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness towards you, his loving action towards you is meant to shift your direction. And so when we put this on, when we wear this, we are just mirroring the one that we are following. And the kindness of God is now working through us for others to experience in their life. Humility. Humility. I always go back to C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not saying, oh, I'm such a worm and I'm the worst person in the world. No, because you know what you're still thinking about when you're saying all that? Yourself. When you walk into a room and you're only worried about how everyone's reacting to me, what are they thinking about me? What you're thinking about yourself. Humility is when we walk into a room and we're thinking of the other first. We're thinking, what, what am I bringing to this room that's helpful for those around me? Now, when we say it like that, we're like, yeah, obviously, that's what we should do. But in reality, we wrestle with that. We struggle with that. There's a battle for that. And on top of that, our culture around us puts ourselves front and center all the time. And so it's being indoctrinated in us that, no, I am the most important thing in my life. And what we see in the life of Jesus is something patterned so differently. Who was washing the feet of the disciples? Jesus didn't say, hey, Judas, I know who you are. It's your turn. No. He got up and he washed all their feet. He modeled it for us in humility. The one who should have been served above and beyond, he modeled servant leadership to us in a way that is still hard for us to understand. And then this idea of meekness. Meekness, this word that even rhymes with the idea of weakness, right? Like we always think like the person who's meek, they're like, eh, it's kind of meek. But meek speaks to strength. It's a reserved strength. It's a bridled strength. It's the kind of strength that doesn't just come in and bowl you over and overwhelm you. The same word for meekness is sometimes translated as gentleness. We see that in the fruit of the spirit that we are to be gentle, in the life of Christ, we see that he had strength and steel of character. And he didn't just obliterate his opponents in front of him, although he could have. No, he utilized his strength and he endured hardship. He endured persecution that came his way. And he used his strength in a way that didn't overwhelm, but brought people along at a pace they could handle. And then finally, we get to patience. Patience. 
long-suffering. Patience. Patience is hard. We don't like to be patient. But let me tell you, a dangerous prayer is, Lord, would you help me be more patient? You will be amazed at the scenarios that suddenly arrive in your life that demand patience. And honestly, if we just start paying attention, you'll see just how impatient we are as a people. And so he gives us this list of five things that we're to put these things on, that we're to begin to wear these, to embody these. And as we look at these garments that we are to wear, they're to affect our life. How? Well, he gives us a couple ways in which this should shape us, that we can bear with one another. I love that idea that we can bear with one another, meaning we can deal with the inconvenience of other people, right? Because sometimes that's how we feel when other people show up. You're like, you are ruining my day. Like this, you're hard to deal with. You're with with me, right? Uh, And when we call that out, we're like, man, but it's there. When someone walks up, you're like, oh. Did anyone just see me do that, you know? So how do we bear with people? Well, you need to be patient. You need to have some humility that it's not all about you in this moment. You need to to be meek, not just kind of cast them aside. You have to have compassion. This person who's walking in, they're like, oh, no, Lord, shift that for me. Help me to bear with the person who's right in front of me. Even when there's complaint against one another, would you help me in this moment to unite us as only you can? Has anyone ever come to you uh, with an emergency, their emergency that doesn't really feel like an emergency for you? Have you ever had one of those moments where they're they're like all flustered? I often think this is called parenting, right? (laughs) Your kids show up, they're like, I need this now, and I need, you know, you're like, you don't actually, you don't. But in those moments where someone's just trying to offload all their stuff on you, right? We can become ninjas real fast at deflecting that and like, nope, don't want anything to do with you. But how do we bear with them? Not taking it all on ourselves, but coming alongside in compassion, humility, loving well in that moment. But he takes it a step further. In community, these things play out not just with bearing with one another, but forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When we are tempted not to forgive or to hold things against people, we would do well to remember the story, the parable that Jesus told of a man who was forgiven a tremendous debt. I go back to the story all the time. A a slave who was indebted to his master and could not pay off his debt. And he comes in and he pleads with his master, can you, I don't, I don't have the money, can you, I don't even know what to do. And the master forgives the debt, all of it, just lets it go. Says, you're, you're free. And the man walking out, elated that no longer does he care the burden of this debt, that once he owed, now he owes nothing. And in his freedom, as he's walking about, he sees someone else come his way who owes him money. And instead of that moment recognizing the debt that was just released from him, the first thing he thinks is, you owe me money and I need it now. And when we see that story play out, we feel how ridiculous it is until we pause for a moment and see how capable we are of living this in our own hearts. 
See, when we begin to look at this list of what we are to put on, these characteristics, these virtues, we see that it stands in contrast to those things that we're to put off and put to death. And one of the ways we could summarize that is those things that we are to put off and that we are to put to death, those things are self-seeking. But these things that we are put on, that we are to to live in and embody, those are all self-giving. It's enabling you to be present to the people who are around you. And as we place these garments on, wearing them, living them, embodying them in community, Paul reminds us in verse 14, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So put these things on, but above all of these, I want you to place the poncho of love over everything, holding it all together. See, because without love, living these things out is to miss the entire point. Paul speaks about love in, in 1 Corinthians 13, and he makes it clear that without love, we're just, we're just missing things. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 3 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love. This summary of all the commandments that Jesus gives to us, that you're to love God with all your being and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And this reminder of when we put on love, it means that even when we do not feel love, we're called to choose love. Because it's this love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. This idea of of binding everything together in perfect harmony, it carries with it this idea of a completeness, a wholeness, something that's without defect or diminishment. And and we can miss this subtlety if if we're not looking for it because so often we see a list of things like this and we immediately go, this is what I need to do. This is my task in front of me. This is what I have to do. But what Paul is saying throughout this and what he's pointing to this Colossian church is that to practice the way of Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus, to embody these truths, you can't do it absent of community. You have to have people around you. You need the body. And so often we want to be individual contributors that just kind of jump in and out when we can because it's way more convenient and it's way less messy. But we are missing out on a fundamental element of following in the way of Jesus, that we are made to be in community, that we are made to practice these things in community together. And so he moves from put these things on, live these things out. And then in verse 15, he shifts to a a different topic. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So he now is saying, okay, put all these things on, remembering that you're chosen, holy, and beloved. 
wear these, embody these things. And as you do so, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule and judge and serve as the arbiter and the umpire over your hearts and the wars that wage within. This verse right here is one that I would encourage you to to commit to, to memory. To allow this to indwell in you when you feel the absence of peace. That you remind yourself to allow the peace of Christ to once again rule your heart. Whenever I think of the peace of Christ ruling my heart, the image that comes to mind is a, is a beautiful mountain lake that's crystal clear and you're standing at the edge and you're looking at it and the, the surface of the water is just pristine and it's still, it's peaceful. But what happens when you throw a stone in it? It disrupts the surface of the water, and now there's a ripple effect. What happens when you throw a couple stones in? Well, now the ripples are coming together, and now you've got a little bit of a churn that's starting to happen. And within our lives, we allow that churn to boil and bubble up within us. We allow the displacement of, of peace, the peace of Christ, to be filled by, by other things that churn within us. It's what we see Peter live out in front of us when he called out to Jesus, like, you're walking on the water. If you call to me, I can do that. And he does it. And he steps out looking at Christ and he walks on the water. But what pulls him back down? It's when he takes his eyes off Christ and he starts to look at the churn of the waves around him and he gets sucked back in. See, when we take our eyes off our peace, our stillness, our source of hope, our ever-present help, we feel the churn of the world around us. And so at times, we have to, to stop and recalibrate, to pause and to fix our minds on Christ. And once again, allow him to rule where we have allowed our worries or our anxieties or our insecurities or our inabilities to rule our heart. When those take over the throne, the churn is going to be significant. But when we fix our eyes back on Christ, we will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. A steadiness that we can hold on to even in the chaos of life. So let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which you were called in one body. Again, this peace is meant to be lived within community. And not just a a false peace. And some of you know what I'm talking about. That kind of peace where you just don't talk about the things that matter. Because you know if you do, like that festering sore that's underneath is just going to erupt. So you just pretend. Now there's something deeper that we're being called into as the community of Christ. But I'll tell you, it's, it's work and it's hard. And it's risky. Living in community is risky because you don't, you don't know what the other's going to do. You don't know how the other's going to respond. There is an inherent risk to being in community, but Paul is continually pointing us back that we are designed to live in such a way that the peace of Christ can rule not only within our hearts, but within the community that we are part of. And then he, he finishes that little phrase and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. 
that theme of thankfulness runs through the course of this letter. We're going to see it three times just in this little section. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. And what do we have to be thankful for? Well, peace has come to us. If you've bowed your knee to Jesus, if you're living in obedience to him, if he is your savior, peace has come to you. Peace is available to you in Christ. So allow him to rule your heart. And when Paul states this in Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace. He is our peace. He's the one that brings wholeness and completeness to us. So let us live with a gratitude towards what he has done and made available in our life. Because when we live with gratitude, we start seeing the ways in which he's moving and not the things that we feel like we're lacking all the time. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then it moves on. He says, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word. The words of Christ. That is the the teachings, the sayings of Christ, the good news of who Jesus is. But honestly, the word that we are to let and dwell in us richly is the entirety of Scripture which points to Jesus and the hope that we have in him and what he's accomplished on our behalf and what he's going to fulfill when he returns again. So we are to let the word of Christ dwell, to remain, to reside in us. That means that we're to take this and we are to stew on it. We're to marinate on its goodness. That it's with us wherever we go so that we can embody these truths and live them. And when we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, well, then we're able to teach one another and admonish one another in all wisdom. The idea here is that because you've been sitting with the word, you've allowed the peace of Christ to to transcend all understanding, to shape who you are. You've let his word dwell within you that now you've got something to share. Because when we sit with him, it just starts to bubble out of us. And so you've got something to to share, to to teach, to admonish, to encourage those who are around you. But just just so we don't jump to like, yeah, yeah, I've been waiting to admonish you for a long time. Remember that last part, okay? Teaching and admonishing in all wisdom. All right, sometimes we want to jump ahead of that wisdom part. We just want to say what we want to say. No, Christ who is our wisdom and whom is hidden all wisdom We want to make sure that our actions are aligning with what he is calling us into and that we're not getting out ahead of him. And then he moves on to this idea that we're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. The worship leader in my heart just wants to stay here for nine weeks and talk about what this could look like. I already apologized to Grace and I'm like, we flew by it in first service and I'm sorry. This is so rich. But what I love, too, is I feel like I see this example lived out in our church in the way in which Grayson leads our worship, that we are singing truth each and every week, that we are singing the Psalms, these words, these these poems, these uh, beautiful uh, sayings that God has given us in the Psalms, these hymns, these rich, packed truths that have melody to them. Spiritual songs that that point us to the goodness and the rule and the reign of who Jesus is. See, when we sing, something does happen. I think it unlocks some things for us. I say this often, but I think often uh, the songs that we sing become the prayers of our people. 
They, they lock in differently. We remember them differently with a, with a melody. And we can all probably at some point speak to a song that just caught us at just the right moment. And it just it hit us with the right truth that we needed in that moment just to stop and remember once again the goodness of who God is. So we should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs over one another. And, and with what? What does he say? With thankfulness in your hearts. Again, this thankfulness, this gratitude that we are to have for what God has done. That in him we have life. The debt that you owed, he paid. The death that we deserve, he died in our place. The life he lived, he's now made available to us. And so now Paul concludes with this. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See what he's doing here? He's saying, put on. As God's chosen, holy, and beloved, put on these virtues, these characteristics, this way of, of Jesus, letting his peace rule in your hearts, letting his word dwell within you richly so that in whatever you do, with your words or with your actions, you're doing it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as you're doing that, what are you doing? You're giving thanks to God the Father through him. So having clothed yourself in the way of Christ, embodying these truths, now everything we do is in his name. That means we are to paint the fence in his name. We are to sand the floor in his name. We are to wax on, wax off in his name. Every day, everything is done to his glory and for his good. We are to be imitators and representatives of him in all that we do. Now, there's a seriousness and a severity to this that feels daunting, but there's also this immense privilege and joy that comes in following after Jesus. Not in perfection, but with our eyes aimed towards him, chasing after him with all that we have. I love how one author stated this. He said, our aim is to be so possessed of the mind of Christ as in thought, feeling, and action to resemble him and, as it were, reproduce the life that he lived. That as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we begin to look more and more like him. I mean, this passage is speaking to the, the very thing that we've been praying from Colossians from the beginning. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light and he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is praying that at the beginning of this letter and now he's fleshing it out and this is what it looks like for us to put that on, to let the peace of Christ dwell within us, to let the word of Christ dwell within you and in everything you do to be living as a human billboard to the goodness of God. But again, when we read this, there's a, a danger, as Dane pointed out last week, that we can start to see this as a to-do list for us to do on our own. But what we must remember is that to follow Christ is to never be on our own. So as we uproot the things that bring death in our lives, we plant and sow the seeds of his way of life. 
We begin to practice what it means to follow him so that our practice becomes habit and our disciplines become a way of life. But again, that could all be on us. And if we do this absent of the Spirit's guidance and empowering and leading, we will always come up short. But God has given us the comforter, the advocate, the helper to indwell within us, to teach us as we go along, to remind us and course correct us as we go. But the question still remains, where where do we begin with this? How do we step forward? And so this week, I just want to give you three questions. The first one is this. What do you need to put on? What do you need to put on? I want to encourage you, whether it's at some point today, this week, that you, you read through Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And you ask yourself, which of these ones? And ask the Spirit, would you, would you highlight for me where I need to focus? Again, I know we could say, well, I need all of them. Yes, I know. I know, you overachievers, I know. But you're not doing all of them well, right? So let's start with one. As he brings to mind that one, maybe, maybe you've just noticed that your words with others have been really sharp lately. That, man, you're just cutting people off the knees and that kindness is just no part of who you are. And so, God, would you just help me? Help me to live in your kindness, to speak with a kindness that, that is honoring to you. And for extra credit, because I know you're looking for extra credit, uh, if you want to grab one of these words, whatever he highlights to you, and just do a word study. Where else does this word show up in Scripture? How is this used throughout Scripture so I have a better understanding of what meekness really looks like, what patience really looks like, of what humility looks like in action? Get in and allow the word of Christ to richly dwell within you as you decipher what the Spirit is speaking to you that you need to to put on and, and really pay attention to this week. Second thing is this. What is ruling your heart? What is ruling your heart? Is the peace of Christ ruling your heart or is something else? Have you allowed your insecurities, your inabilities, your inadequacies, are those, your worries, are those the things that are speaking to your heart more than anything right now? Is it creating a disturbance and a, and a churn and a chop within the waters of your soul? And let me encourage you as you think through that, begin your day each day. And I'm finding this more and more true in my life. I, I had a pattern where I was, I, was, I was working out and then I was reading scripture and the Lord's like, I, I, you just need to come to me first. And I'm like, I really do. I need, I need to hear from you before I hear from anything else. Because that peace wants to flee so quickly. It wants to be bumped so quickly that I just encourage you, start your day at some point, pause and point yourself towards Christ. And say, Lord, I need you. And what I know to be true is that you may experience a peace in that moment. You may have to fight for a peace and be like, Lord, I feel like I'm just pretending I've got peace in you right now, but I'm, I'm at least here in the conversation with you. And then throughout your day, as you get bumped around, stop and reorient once again. And just continue to ask, okay, what's ruling my heart right now? What's ruling my heart right now? What is, what is making me feel this way? What is, what is barking at me louder than it should? And then the third question is this, who are you living for? What Colossians is continually pointing us to is that all things are for him. 
All things are from him. All things are to him. So whatever you do in word or in deed, we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You, as a follower of Jesus, are to live as a living witness to what God has done. So I'd encourage you, at the end of your day, just ask the Spirit, just, Lord, where, where was I living for you today and where was I living for myself? Just, just as a, and, and not, you know, some of you take a practice like that and you're like, I just, I'm going to beat myself up so bad at the end of the day. No. We were talking about this in our home group uh, earlier this week. The Spirit's kindness and his gentleness and his conviction to us. I have experienced that over and over again, that his course correction could be so severe, but so often it's just this reminder of like, there's more for you. This, this is not the way. So allow his gentle voice to guide that process, not your own interior monologue that wants to fillet yourself and say, okay, where did I get in the way? Where did I, where did I make this day about me and not about you? See, when we feel the weight of a passage like this, it's so easy for the enemy to come. I felt it even just reading this passage. When I started this week reading through it, I was like, oh, I wish I had to put the death things. That, that felt easier to put on things. And the enemy is just like, you can't do any of this stuff. Who are you fooling? But that's where we remember where we started. We're not doing it in our own strength. We're not doing it in our own ability. But if you have bowed your knee to Jesus, you are chosen. You are holy. And you are beloved. This is where we begin. This is where we end. Placing the poncho of his love over the entirety of our being. That in him we may love as he first loved. That we may live as he lived, practicing the way of Jesus and abounding in thanksgiving for what he has done. May this be our path forward. And may this be what we put on this week. You pray with me. Father, I just... I thank you for your kindness, for your mercy, for your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would continue to move in us, opening our eyes to those things that we need to put on in you, and not for our own glory, but for yours. The invitation that you lay before us to, to your peace. That all who call upon your name can experience the peace of Christ. And so Lord, would we not wrestle you for rule of our hearts, but would we hand it over to you, our good king. And would we pattern our lives after you? Would we take these words and not just know them, but embody them in word and in deed? Would your spirit empower and equip? Would you grow us? Would you continue that beautiful process of sanctification within our lives? And Father, when we forget, would we return to your word and would we hear once again that all who follow you are chosen, holy, 
and beloved. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.